Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host. And this is episode 11, Love is Like Oxygen. In this episode, we shall discuss more research on gases and the founding of modern chemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Gases continued to be an important subject of research in the 1700s, so let's continue further with Joseph Black's work on the matter. He found that candles would not burn in an enclosed jar filled with fixed air. Then he absorbed the carbon dioxide in the jar, leaving some leftover air in the jar. It was neither fixed air nor allowed candles to burn. What was it? Black let his student, Daniel Rutherford, examine the issue in 1772. So Rutherford decided to remove all possible combusting ability from the air in the jar. With new air, he placed a mouse in the jar, which eventually suffocated. Then he burned a candle in the remaining air till it went out. Then he burned phosphorus in that remaining air till that stopped burning. Then he passed the remaining air through a solution to absorb the fixed air. The conclusion Rutherford and Black had was that the leftover air in the jar was completely saturated with phlogiston, allowing no more burning at all. So they called this gas phlogisticated air, or also mephitic air, because it was spoiled and allowed no burning. Another name that caught on, especially in French, was azote, from Greek for no life, because animals cannot breathe it. We call it nitrogen, but we shall see why soon. Another researcher who investigated gases, along with other scientific phenomena, contemporaneously with Black was, frankly, an aristocratic weirdo named Henry Cavendish. He was extremely shy, avoided talking to women, and obsessive. He also wore out-of-style clothing, but he was nothing other than very precise in his measurements and observations. While he didn't often publish his research, he definitely did publish the following work. One bit of work was what happened when you reacted metals with acids, liberating some kind of gas. He described the gas very carefully, noted that it was very light, or we can say it was low density in comparison with normal air, and it was very flammable, its main property of interest. So he called it inflammable air. Today we call it hydrogen, but not quite yet. But because it was so combustible and lightweight, Cavendish toyed with the idea that this was actual phlogiston. A third researcher was a kind of a Renaissance man, that is, a man with very wide interests. This was Joseph Priestley, a Unitarian minister who did scientific research as a hobby. For a while, in the 1760s, he was a pastor in Leeds, in Yorkshire, England, next door to a brewery, which, as we already found from Joseph Black, was fermenting and creating fixed air like mad. Priestley used the pneumatic trough to try to collect fixed air, but we also know that fixed air dissolves in water. In one of those don't-try-this-at-home moments in the present, but not so much in the 1700s, Priestley decided to taste this solution of fixed air and water. The solution had a pleasant, sharp flavor, what we now call soda water or seltzer. So we can call Priestley the father of the carbonated beverage industry. 
He wrote a treatise on electricity, quoting much of Benjamin Franklin's work, and ingratiated himself with Franklin and his scientific pals. Priestley was awarded a doctorate from the University of Edinburgh based on his book. The problem of collecting gases over water, though, because fixed air was soluble in water, Priestley solved. Instead of water in his pneumatic trough, he used mercury and was able to isolate a variety of other water-soluble but not mercury-soluble airs, such as nitrogen oxide gas, ammonia vapor, hydrogen chloride, and sulfur dioxide. These, of course, are the modern names of the gases whose modern names hadn't been invented yet. Which brings us to a most unusual bit of experimentation Priestley did in 1774. Priestley was using mercury. If you heat mercury in air, you get an orangey-red calx. He decided to heat this calx in a glass tube using direct sunlight as the heat source. Mercury reappeared as silver drops, but also a gas came off during the decomposition reaction. He collected this gas and tested its properties. One amazing property of this new gas was that objects burned even more vigorously than in air, that mice breathed the gas and were more active than normal. In yet another don't-try-this-at-home event, Priestley tested the gas by breathing it himself. He remarked that he felt light and easy. Given that this new gas helped combustion more than normal air, it clearly had to have no phlogiston whatsoever. So he named it deflogisticated air but we call it oxygen, whose name will become clear later in this episode. But did Priestley discover oxygen? We turn to Sweden and the chemist Carl Wilhelm Scheele. Scheele was already involved with research into acids, of which he discovered a variety. Citric acid, tartaric acid, benzoic acid, malic acid, oxalic acid, all derived from plants. Lactic and uric acids, derived from animals and molybdic and arsenious acids derived from minerals. But gases were the fad of the 18th century, and Shela did work with them, discovering hydrogen fluoride, hydrogen sulfide, and hydrogen cyanide. These are all poisonous, and likely his work with all these toxic materials contributed to his early death at the age of 44. Sweden was becoming a hotbed of mineralogical research in the 1700s, especially with the discovery of new metals. George Brandt found a bluish rock that looked like copper ore, but miners could not extract copper from it, complaining that underground spirits called cobalds put a spell on the rock. By 1730, Brandt discovered a new metal in this ore that was something like iron, and he named it therefore cobalt. More metals followed under Swedish research. Axel Frederick Kronstedt found another iron-like metal he called nickel in 1751. Johann Gottlieb Gahn found manganese metal in 1774, and Peter Jakob Helm discovered molybdenum in 1782. Kronstedt also pioneered using a blowpipe, a tube with a narrowing end, to analyze minerals. When you blow through the wider end, the narrow tip produces an intense jet of air. Direct the jet of air through a flame onto your mineral sample. Depending on the mineral, Various colors and vapors appeared which can be analyzed. But back to Shela. He also worked with mercury calx and other substances that liberated deflogisticated air and isolated this gas in 1771. But he called it fire air because things burned so well. 
He also isolated and described phlogisticated air, nitrogen, in 1772, before Priestley and Rutherford. Unfortunately, his publications, ready to print in 1775, were delayed through the journal's negligence till 1777, so Shela doesn't usually get the credit for oxygen. This is one example of why scientists now rush to get their work into print to establish first priority. In any case, the discovery of oxygen was, shall we say, in the air. Now we move to France and discuss the married and mutually supportive partners Antoine Lavoisier and Marie-Anne Pauls Lavoisier. Antoine was a civil servant to the King of France as a member of the Ferme Générale, a private company contracted by the government to collect tobacco taxes, which generated a decent enough income so that he could spend his time on gentleman science, a common way of doing science with other income to support it. He married his wife, the daughter of another member of the Ferme Générale, when she was about 14. She was a brilliant woman who pursued studies in many areas, including art, languages, and chemistry. Around 1785, she became one of only about 20 women pupils of Jacques-Louis David, the preeminent French painter of the period. In an almost totally male-dominated culture and artistic profession of the time, this group of women, including Marie-Anne, was certainly exceptional among the 400 artists David instructed over several decades. With her husband in the laboratory, she observed and used her artistic abilities to document Antoine's experiments, including making meticulous drawings of the complex laboratory apparatus being used, for which she provided 13 detailed signed engravings for her husband's Traité Elementaire de Chimie, which we discuss later in this episode. She knew English from being educated in a convent and thus translated in a number of key scientific publications from Cavendish and Priestley for her husband, who didn't know English. Though her husband was the primary author at the time, she edited the publications they prepared. Antoine himself became convinced of the value of accurate measurement, like Cavendish. He spent vast sums of money on new, more accurate scientific apparatus. One example of his precise work was in 1770, to test the Aristotelian idea that water can grow into metals through a long application of heat. He put water in a sealed glass flask with sidearms, called a pelican flask, and boiled it for 101 days. The water condensed in the sidearms and returned to the base where it was continuously reboiled. Both water and flask he weighed before and after the experiment. Sediment did appear, but the water weighed the same before and after. The flask plus sediment's weight afterward equaled the weight the flask's weight before. Therefore, the sediment was not converting water to earth, but was merely the product of slow etching of the flask itself. No transmutation occurred. Another application of his chemical knowledge was in 1772, when he and some chemist friends jointly bought a diamond, placed it in a sealed jar, and directed a huge magnifier concentrating sunlight onto the diamond inside, burning it. Analysis of the flask's contents showed the production of fixed air, proving that diamond was a form of carbon. All these experiments led Antoine Lavoisier to the conclusion that chemical change only moved mass around in a reaction. No matter was created or destroyed. This is called the law of conservation of mass, 
which lasted for 150 years and still holds mostly true for everyday chemical reactions. Once again, I must inject a sidebar about who formulated this law first. Lavoisier is famous for popularizing it, but a Russian Renaissance man, Mikhail Lomonosov, demonstrated it 15 years earlier. Lomonosov involved himself in all sorts of scholarly activities, from electrical research, some have likened him to Benjamin Franklin, to chemistry, to grammar. He seems to have been the first to suggest that heat was atomic motion. He advanced astronomy and even wrote poetry. But it seems that because he published his works in Russian, Western European natural philosophers ignored him. At this time, which historians call the Age of Enlightenment, there was a wide interest in painting scientific subjects. So I've asked Martin Rosenberg, an art historian who has specialized in this period, is a feminist scholar, and happens to have a bachelor's degree in chemistry, to talk a bit about the English painter Joseph Wright, as well as a famous portrait of Marie-Anne and Antoine Lavoisier. Thank you, Steve, for the invitation to contribute to this podcast by discussing some works of art that relate to scientific aspects of the Enlightenment, including chemistry. During this movement of the 17th and 18th centuries, leading intellectual figures such as Voltaire, labeled philosophes, challenged centuries of received wisdom, rigid institutions and dogmas of church and state, as well as long-held beliefs about nature, human beings, and life itself. This shift from faith and belief to an attitude of questioning, observation, experiment, and above all, a rational approach to understanding led to radical developments in scientific, religious, intellectual, political, philosophical, artistic, and literary thought and practice that radically transformed one's view of oneself, one's role in the universal order, and even of God. Before we begin our exploration of specific works, I want to note that as an art historian, I generally show my audience the works as I discuss them. Although this presents a challenge for an audio podcast, I urge you, if possible, to follow the links we've provided to view and perhaps even to print out a copy of the works under discussion. Today, we will discuss two major paintings of 18th century scientific activity by the British artist Joseph Wright of Derby, a philosopher lecturing on the Orrery of 1766, and an experiment on a bird in the air pump of 1768. We will also explore an extraordinary double portrait now in the Metropolitan Museum, painted in 1787-9, to just before the French Revolution, by Jacques-Louis David, the preeminent French painter of the late 18th and early 19th century, of Antoine Lavoisier, who is a major focus of this podcast, along with Marie-Anne Paul's Lavoisier, his wife and artist partner in his scientific explorations. Wright of Darby's two works represent a complex synthesis of art, science, and philosophy in engaging works of great aesthetic quality and originality that demonstrate his artistic mastery utilized to convey complex ideas. Although there were many illustrations documenting scientific activity at this time, Wright's making such activity the focus of large, multi-figured, publicly exhibited paintings was unprecedented in British art and quite daring. The content of these works was clearly influenced by the interests of Wright's circle of friends, acquaintances, and patrons, 
including members of an important group of provincial philosophers and scientists, the Lunar Society, which met monthly to conduct experiments and to discuss current developments in areas such as chemistry, geology, electricity, medicine, gases, and other topical subjects for scientific and industrial investigation. Among the members were the chemist Joseph Priestley, to whom we've been introduced, Dr. Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of Charles, James Watt, the developer of steam technology, and other notables. In both of these works by Wright, the artist depicts scientific demonstrations for laymen, including men, women, and children, specific individuals, likely friends and acquaintances of the artist. Such public demonstrations of scientific discoveries for everyday people were increasingly popular at this time, and Wright likely viewed such demonstrations. Both works are set in a darkened interior, lending an air of mystery and wonder to the proceedings, a type of atmosphere traditionally seen in religious paintings. Candlelight, depicted in the work, provides the only source of illumination. It thus provides, quote, enlightenment, which is both physical and metaphysical, as the light reveals the details of the demonstration and the viewers' diverse attitudes and emotional reactions as they engage with the wonders of science and the natural world of which they are a part. They are quite literally depicted in the moment of enlightenment. And with the sense right conveys that we, the viewers, are also in the room, we are invited to join this group and to react in our own way to these demonstrations. Although the enlightenment highlighted humans' rational facilities, as the key to understanding, there was also an acute awareness of the importance of emotion in how humans related to the world, what we might call the sense and sensibility of the period. After all, this period also saw the birth of Romanticism. Although the two works, painted just two years apart, have a great deal in common, there are also significant differences, a few of which we should note. First, the orrery is not in the strictest sense a scientific instrument. It was a complex clockwork device designed to demonstrate the relative motions of the planets in relation to the sun, explain eclipses, and provide a physical demonstration of the view of the universe based on universal gravitation, as revealed by Isaac Newton in the 17th century. In contrast, the air pump depicts an actual scientific experiment in which a living creature, or more commonly an artificial bladder, was placed in the air pump's glass vessel with a stopcock. As air was evacuated from the vessel, the effects on the animal, in this case a rather exotic white cockatoo, were noted, including its possible death. By Wright's day, the experiment with the air pump had become a piece de resistance for many traveling scientific lecturers. In this work, as in the orrery, Wright appeals to the intellect, but in the air pump, he enhances the elements that can engage the viewer through the emotions. The bird, already distressed, is depicted suspended between life and death with an uncertain outcome. Will the scientist open the stopcock or not? Wright also heightens the emotional impact of the scene by portraying the reaction of two young girls, the younger wearing a worried expression and the older who hides her face and cannot bear to watch. With Wright's prominent inclusion in the foreground of a human skull in a glass vessel, the artist invites the viewer not only to consider the wonders of science and one's place in the natural order, but to contemplate one's own mortality. One critic, viewing the work in 1768 when it was first exhibited, described the artist as, quote, a very great and uncommon genius in a peculiar way. Now let us turn to the extraordinary double portrait of the Lavoisiers by Jacques-Louis David, now in the Metropolitan Museum. One is immediately struck by its large size, nearly nine by six feet. 
In France, such a large-sized portrait would generally be reserved for royalty, as we see, for example, in numerous portraits of Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, by her court painter, Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun. In David's portrait, Lavoisier's are depicted in an elegant neoclassical interior. In this carefully staged work, Antoine is seated at his desk writing, surrounded by several pieces of chemical apparatus that might have come from Lavoisier's laboratory. Attributes of his scientific activity, carefully and accurately rendered, down to the refraction of the image of a document box as seen through the liquid in a piece of chemical apparatus in front of it. Marie Anne stands almost intertwined with Antoine, casually leaning on his shoulder as she looks out at the viewer, immediately commanding our attention. Her artistic role in the partnership is made clear by the presence of her portfolio on the left side of the canvas. Together they form a stable pyramid, suggesting their indissoluble union of hearts and minds. Here the poses, expressions, and gestures of the Lavoisiers express a union that is more than the sum of its parts. One of my primary fascinations with art history is that, like science, it constantly evolves. New questions are asked, and new ways of addressing these questions are brought to bear to gain new insights and a richer understanding. In undertaking conservation of the Lavoisier's portrait to remove old degraded varnish, a major chemical and artistic undertaking in and of itself, some anomalies were observed that raised new questions. The Met then assembled an extraordinary interdisciplinary team, including an art historian, a conservator, and a research scientist, and other experts, to combine their expertise and to utilize, for the first time, state-of-the-art analytical devices and techniques to try to better understand the genesis, materials, David's techniques, and the evolution of this masterpiece. The results, which I will briefly summarize, were astounding and completely transformed our prior views of the work, and chemistry played a major role. It has always been assumed that the portrait we see today is as David originally intended it, a rich representative of two extraordinary individuals of the time, the scientist, the father of modern chemistry, and the artist's scientific partner, each with their respective attributes, depicted in their intimate and highly productive relationship. Utilizing infrared reflectography to penetrate the upper layers of the work to reveal changes in the composition, and X-ray fluorescence mapping to reveal the distribution of elements in the pigments of paint used, including those that lay beneath the surface, along with other analytical techniques and extensive analysis by diverse experts, produced extraordinary new insights into David's original conception, materials and techniques, and alterations he made to the work to bring it to its current state. I will focus on two of the most striking revelations of this in-depth study. Marie Anne was originally wearing a very large and elaborate hat, reflecting the up-to-the-minute fashions of 1787 when the work was begun. Antoine was depicted writing at a very fashionable and expensive desk, but there were no pieces of scientific apparatus in David's original conception of the portrait. What factors might have caused David to so radically alter the composition, painting over the hat and the elaborate desk, and adding the scientific instruments. Consider two facts. The painting was conceived and executed in the two years that led to the French Revolution. Lavoisier's wealth came from serving as a tax collector, financier, and administrator for the increasingly unpopular king. So what seems to have begun as a more conventional portrait of a fashionable, wealthy, aristocratic couple of the Ancien Regime was transformed by David into an image which downplayed their wealth and focused attention on their scientific and artistic achievements in the service of France, an image more fitting for the increasingly revolutionary times in which the work was completed, which would lead in just a few years to the dissolution of the monarchy and the execution of the king. Marianne survived the revolution, living until 1836, 
After his death, Marianne organized the publications of his final memoirs, Memoirs de Chimie, a compilation of his papers and those of his colleagues that demonstrated the principles of the new chemistry. One volume dealt with combustion, air, calcination of metals, the action of acids, and the composition of water, key topics discussed by our host. Thus, Marianne helped to establish and secure Lavoisier's place as the father of modern chemistry. Thanks, Marty. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Joseph Priestley visited Paris in the autumn of 1774 and met the Lavoisiers at a dinner, where he mentioned his research with deflogisticated air coming from hot mercury calcs. For several years, Antoine Lavoisier ruminated over Priestley's discovery, finally writing in 1778, The principle that unites with metals during calcinations, which increases their weight, and which is a constituent of the calx, is nothing else than the healthiest and purest part of the air, which, after entering into combination with a metal, can be set free again and emerge in an eminently respirable condition more suited than atmospheric air to support ignition and combustion. This is quoted from Brock's The History of Chemistry, a very short introduction. Deflogisticated air burns carbon to form fixed air, a weak acid. So Lavoisier renamed deflogisticated air oxygen, which means acid former. Lavoisier believed, falsely as was shown later by Humphrey Davy, that oxygen was a necessary component of acids. German translated the name of the gas directly as Sauerstoff. Oxygen was not decomposable into elements, so it must be an element. This solved one of the problems of the phlogiston theory. When metals corrode, they gain weight during the reaction. The additional weight in the corrosion or rust is the oxygen added to the metal. Furthermore, Lavoisier argued, oxygen contained heat, or caloric as he called it, keeping it in a chaotic, gaseous state. Thus, Lavoisier changed the definition of heat from something that changed the chemical composition to something, an element, he thought, that merely changed its physical state, that is, solid, liquid, or gaseous. It was not removed from a material combusting. While phlogiston was this ghostly, evanescent substance reminiscent of the Aristotelian qualities, heat was measurable with these new standardized thermometers we mentioned in previous episodes. If that wasn't enough to revolutionize chemistry, as they said back in the 1970s, but wait, there's more. There was still the question about water and acids. So let's return to Joseph Priestley in 1781, who electrically sparked a glass bulb through a mixture of air and inflammable air, hydrogen. He got water. How does one explain this? Priestley mentioned this effect to Henry Cavendish, who reported his ultra-detailed results in 1784, as quoted in Brock's book. 
it appeared that when inflammable air and common air are exploded in a proper proportion, almost all the inflammable air and near one-fifth of the common air lose their elasticity and are condensed into dew. It appears that this dew is plain water. How can two gases be turned into the element water? Lavoisier immediately heard of this and realized that water is not an element, but a chemical compound composed of oxygen and inflammable air. He relabeled inflammable air as hydrogen, meaning water former. The main gas in air was azote, but was also renamed nitrogen from nitre forming. We use this word while French and Russian retain the word azote. I want to note as a sidebar here that Cavendish analyzed the resultant gases in this experiment and found one 120th part that refused to react with anything. It wasn't nitrogen, it wasn't oxygen, and it wasn't any other known air or gas. Technology at the time wasn't available for Cavendish to go further, and the result was left ignored for over a hundred years. We shall return to this oddity later in our series. Back to Antoine Lavoisier, who decided that chemistry needed rebuilding from the ground up, removing the unscientific phlogiston, and substituting a new scheme. He said in 1785, Chemists have made phlogiston a vague principle which is not strictly defined, and which consequently fits all the explanations demanded of it. Sometimes it has weight, sometimes it has not. Sometimes it is free fire, sometimes it is fire combined with an earth. Sometimes it passes through the pores of vessels, sometimes they are impenetrable to it. It explains at once causticity and non-causticity, transparency and opacity, color and the absence of colors. It is a veritable proteus that changes its form at every instance. He converted his younger assistants to this new view of combustion with oxygen, but found that it was difficult for him to publish his ideas in the standard journals. So he and friends founded a new journal in 1788, Annales de Chimie, which was an avowedly pro-oxygen, anti-phlogistic publication, and still exists today, an internationally recognized pan-European chemistry journal. Lavoisier and friends also decided, in their rebuilding of chemistry, to readjust chemical nomenclature, that is, what we call chemicals. Up to this time, chemicals were named for their properties or source or even how they were used. One of Lavoisier's buddies, Louis-Bernard Guiton de Morveau, suggested copying the style of the famous Linnaeus, who some years before gave systematic names to living creatures. Guiton proposed several rules for chemical terminology. 1. That a chemical has a definite, fixed name. 2 that a chemical's name should be based on its composition. Here we see complete abandonment of Aristotle. And three, use names from Latin and Greek. In 1787, Lavoisier and friends published a 300-page guide for this new nomenclature based on oxygen chemistry, which again showed the power of marketing. You use my names, therefore you implicitly accept my system. Examples of the change are... Instead of oil of vitriol, we say sulfuric acid, whose salts became sulfates. Instead of flowers of zinc, we say zinc oxide. Naturally, this whole system opposed to phlogiston caused controversy. 
They, with the help of Marianne, also published a new chemistry book, Traité élémentaire de chimie in 1789, whose English title was An Elementary Treatise of Chemistry, and which quickly became a standard. The text had a list of 33 elements based on Boyle's definition, including light and heat. While the new nomenclature rapidly became accepted throughout the scientific world, the byproduct of this naming system is that earlier chemical books and recipes became almost unreadable to the chemist. Modern chemists have a very difficult time interpreting chemistry publications before Lavoisier. To complete the propagandistic transformation of the old phlogistic chemistry to the modern version, Marianne and Antoine had a party in which she dressed up as a Roman priestess and set Georg Stahl's book on fire to symbolically show the death of the old chemistry. In our next episode, we shall see Lavoisier's immediate legacy. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.